peace and grace to you this morning, Mission Fellowship. I'm guessing that many of us this morning are coming to this time of worship emotionally tired. Perhaps you're tired of isolation, tired of fear and anxiety, tired of the confusion that comes from listening to the myriad of voices that seem to be screaming into the air. Or perhaps you're sad at the division, angry at injustice and hateful hardened hearts that are showing more and more. Perhaps the ups and downs regarding reopening and the numbers around COVID-19 cases are giving you a feeling of instability. Wherever you're at, I can empathize with all of these feelings and many more. And it's because of this that we, as Christ followers, need to grow more humble, more soft-hearted, more empathetic, and more reliant upon the Word and Spirit of God. With each passing week, as we will be discussing today, it becomes more and more necessary to rely upon the truth of God's Word and not upon our own emotions or opinions. We need to let God's Word reshape us and break us of any characteristics or attributes that are not of Jesus. So let's pause this morning, as we've done often during the COVID-19 restrictions, to check our hearts to see if they are hardened and angry, or if they are soft to the things of God. And let's purposefully hand them over to the Holy Spirit, so that we might walk in His truth this morning. This morning we will be continuing through Mark in chapters 11 and 12. But first, we will hear from Cassie Ussery as she reads from Psalm 118, verses 19 through 29. And then we will hear Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, read by Sam Norton. Both are integral to our understanding of our text today. Prayers will be given by Dallas Cole and Patrick Schneider. And worship will be led by Seth and Danielle Spangle. Dear Jesus, we ask that your spirit would remove any part of us or any part of the world around us that would distract us from your word today. Please give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. A reading from Psalm 118, 19 through 29. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We will bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. A reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, and behold, an outcry. 
This is the word of the Lord. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are a God of infinite magnificence. Your glory shall not belong to another. There is only one who is holy, and that is you, Father. We remember the former things of old, for you are God, and there is no other. You are God, and there is none like you, declaring the end from the beginning. May your name be recognized as great by all the nations. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We wait for you to gather up all your enemies and turn them into your footstool. We cry out to you, dethrone the powers, overturn empires, destroy everything that opposes you. Your counsel shall stand and you will accomplish all of your purposes. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We depend on you for every good gift. We all have sinned against you, offended you, and transgressed your law. Spirit, grieve our hearts to the point where our bones ache when we contribute to oppression and injustice toward your creation and our fellow humans. We desperately need forgiveness for none of us is righteous. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Rescue us from everything that opposes you. Bridle our tongues. Help us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. We depend on you to empower us to endure until the end, until your return, for we are helpless to resist temptation without you. For you are our rock and our fortress, and for your name's sake, you lead us and guide us. Into your hand we commit our spirits, for you have redeemed us, dear Yahweh. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The topic of authority is a major point of discussion in our country and world right now. For many, battle lines have been drawn, much like almost every other topic, and the rigidity of defensive hearts has played into the narrative for some that authority is completely good or that authority is completely bad. And if you have noticed, a lot of the discussion centers around if the authority in question agrees with the person speaking or not. It has caused philosophical whiplash to watch people rage against authority in one instance and then condemn others for doing the same thing on a different topic. The issue of authority enters into our politics, our households, our marriages, our churches, our schools, our sporting events, our law enforcement, our communities. There is virtually no sphere of life that is not affected by the topic of authority. And even when we talk about chaos, anarchy, or autonomy, we are not getting rid of authority, but merely attributing it to each individual. Our society, both sides of the supposed political aisle, is full of humans who simply want to be an authority unto themselves. While separated by millennia from our first mother and father in the Garden of Eden, we are not all that dissimilar. But this morning, I want us to put a pause on our personal philosophies of authority for a minute and consider another option outside of authority being either wholly good or wholly bad. I believe the model of authority given throughout the Bible is this. Authority resides solely with the Almighty God. He then hands it out to individuals and institutions to utilize that authority for His glory and the good of the people it serves. Human authority that is right and true and needs to be followed is only the authority that originates with God and from His character. Anything outside of that character, such as abuse of authority or authority that is used for personal gain, is not God-given, nor God-approved. But have you noticed how hard it is to think critically on this topic in the current climate? 
It is so easy for us to be led by our own opinions and politics rather than led by the word of God. It is so easy for us to build an opinion in our own wisdom, not realizing that our opinion is probably not based upon God's will and authority, but on our own. And the hardest part about what I am saying is that unless we deeply study the full canon of God's word, we can quickly and easily manipulate scripture to say what we want it to say and to mold God and his character and authority into our own image. This is how the Israelites were able to commit idolatry and injustice while still believing they were God's people. We have to be extremely careful. And this was the very problem that was going on in our text that we will read today. Jesus came to the leaders of the day and challenged what they were fully assured was true. And rather than reacting with soft hearts, asking questions, willing to listen and challenge their firmly held belief, they simply disregarded Jesus, defended themselves, and plotted how to get rid of him. Rather than submit to the authority of Christ, they rebelled against it. So this morning, the goal of our text is to challenge how we look at the authority of Christ so that we can ask ourselves if we are rebelling against it or submitting to it. And that's the title for our teaching today, The Authority of Christ. These last few weeks, and really the last few months since COVID-19 restrictions were put in place, has caused me personally to wrestle with this topic. I have been so lost in the cacophony of voices and opinions, many of whom I love and trust, that I realized much of my opinion on topics was based in the opinion of men and not in the authority of Scripture. How often we take Scripture and run it through our own authority and experience rather than operating the other way around, letting Scripture speak over us and define our experience. Overall, I have realized that I personally need to ask the question of whose authority I am operating in. Is it my own? My ancestors? the leaders of institutions I have been a part of? Or am I operating under the authority of Christ as King and the ultimate definer of truth? So let's ponder that as we jump into our text today, beginning with Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. It says there, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say, From heaven, He will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What we see here first is, if you're taking down notes, you can jot this down, the challenge to Jesus's authority. The first thing we see is the challenge to Jesus' authority. The first thing we need to clarify is what are the, quote, these things that the religious leaders are bringing to Christ's attention. One option is that these things are his general miracle work and teaching. Another is that it is his entrance into Jerusalem as king. Another possibility is that it relates to the clearing of the temple that we covered last week. In all three synoptic gospels, the authors place this statement of Jesus' authority in the context of his actions in clearing the temple and passing judgment on the dead religion of Israel. Mark frames his discussion with the triumphal entry, which, as we saw last week, contrasts the worship of his followers with the absence of any response by the religious leaders themselves. So the religious leaders, made up of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, come to Jesus and ask him the question, Who gave you this authority? They challenged the origin of his authority. Now, this is no different than what we find in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. Back in Genesis 3, if you'll turn there with me, the serpent comes to Eve and challenges two things. 
First, her understanding of God's very clear command, and second, the character of God. Go there with me to Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We see the challenge to Eve's understanding right at the end of verse 1, and then the challenge to God's character, in essence saying God was motivated by the need to hold power, in verse 4. Now going back to Mark 11, we see this exact same issue. Who gave you this authority? And by asking this question, there's an underlying assertion that because it was not from them, from the religious leaders, Jesus actually has no authority. They were assured that they were within the authority of God and that Jesus was the one outside God's authority. Now, before we pass judgment, let's think about how often we do that, where we are assured that we are within the authority of God and what might be given to us as a convicting truth is actually outside of God's authority. Well, so Jesus, in a wonderfully wise response, responds with a question to their question. Where did the baptism of John come from? Did it come from man or from God? And that's what he's referring to when he says heaven. Jesus was not being rude by answering their question with a question. He was simply digging out the root of their question. Throughout Mark, the ministries of John the baptizer and Jesus have been very tightly linked. Look with me, for example, at the beginning of Mark, and let's take a look at Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice come from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Mark begins his gospel proclamation with the connection that it was John the Baptist who prepared the way for Jesus, identified Jesus as the Messiah, and then performed the ritual baptism in which the very voice of the Ancient of Days anointed Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. So the religious leaders knew that if they said that John's baptism had the authority of God behind it, they would automatically be saying that Jesus had the same authority. And if they didn't, they would be called out by the people because John's ministry was in the tradition of repentance. It was very popular with the people. Now, this supposed tradition of repentance was the very same thing that the religious leaders said with their mouths that they wanted, but in their actions, they were actually not following through. But when push came to shove, Jesus uncovered that what motivated them was not the truth of God's authority and reign and righteousness, what motivated them was a perverse mix of self-interest, fear of man, and political idolatry. And so Jesus responds that he does not need to submit to their inquisition because by their response, they do not serve God or the truth of his rule. They are only submitting to themselves. Now this will signal the beginning of the opposition that Jesus will encounter from here until the cross. But where did Jesus's authority come from? We probably already know the answer. But let's look at that question, and let's also ask, what does that mean for the authority of the religious leaders? Because were they not the same? No, they weren't. And that is where we turn to the next parable in Mark chapter 12 to fill out the understanding of the authority of Christ. Because next, what we'll find is this. You can write this down. 
we'll see the parable of usurped authority. The parable of usurped authority. Before we step into it, though, let's go back and discuss the Old Testament background that we need to grasp to fully see what this is about. Keep your finger here in Mark chapter 12 and go back with me to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 that we had read to us earlier. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Let's read it again. It says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now, this could not be more clear. God planted Israel to be a fruitful people in the midst of a chaotic wilderness. He gave them everything that they needed in order to accomplish this. He protected them, gave them provision, cared for them, and loved them. But when he went to them to look for the very fruit for which he had planted them, Notice that it is justice and righteousness he looked for. Mishpat, tzedakah, the Hebrew words for justice and righteousness. He did not find these things. Instead of justice, he found violent bloodshed. And instead of righteousness, he found an outcry of oppression. This sounds kind of like our own nation right now, doesn't it? Now, this was an extremely well-known portion of Isaiah in the mind of the Jews. And the response of the leaders in verse 12 makes sense in the light of it playing off of Isaiah 5. So let's take this background and go back to Mark chapter 12. And now let's read the parable. It says in Mark 12:1, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. From the Isaiah 5 picture, the one planting the vineyard, the owner and ultimate authority over the vineyard is God. And he cultivated the vineyard, doing everything he could for them. And then, notice the specific wording, he leased it to tenants and went away. Now this was a well-known idea of tenant farming in those days. The landowners, in essence, loan the land to the tenant farmer with the understanding that the tenant will pay a portion of their profit to the landowner when the time of harvest comes. It was so well known that hearers of the next section would be completely baffled at the ridiculous nature of the tenants beating the servants of the landowner. Also notice that the servant is not coming to take away their land, nor to take all of their fruit. He came to get, quote, some of the fruit of the vineyard. This was in no way, shape, or form out of the ordinary. 
but the response of the tenants shows that they had perverted the roles of the landowner and their own. They had become delusional and taken on the false notion that the vineyard was actually theirs and they could do with it what they pleased. They usurped the authority of the landowner. Now, in the allegorical language, these servants are the many prophets of God sent to ascertain if there was righteousness and justice being performed and lived out in Israel. But you know how that went. With each prophet, what did they find? Injustice and unrighteousness. Over and over, the very people that claimed to be the people of God were quick to actions that caused bloodshed and outcry, turning a blind eye to oppression and heartache. Then the prophets would respond with something along the lines of, hold on a second, this is not how the people of God are supposed to act. God deserves activity that brings about righteousness and justice as a response to his gracious love. And as a result of their proclamation, the people, uh, they were trying to pull back to the truth and pull back to service towards God, took those same prophets and beat them and killed them. And this is the history of Israel. Really, this is the history of mankind, and unfortunately, it is too often the state of what occurs in the church as well. But then the story turns in verse 6. Because the servants have all been harmed, the owner of the land sends his own beloved son. He is literally the flesh and blood of the landowner, the ultimate authority. In fact, he is the one to whom the inheritance of this vineyard has been given. Surely, The tenants won't beat up or kill the next in line to the position of authority. It is by his gracious hand that these tenants will even have the land in the first place. But notice what happens. The son comes to see the state of affairs and give one final opportunity to the tenants to show that they were operating under the will of the landowner, providing the fruit of righteousness and justice. But instead of meeting him with thanksgiving and joy, they killed him and threw him out, thinking that they would then be able to usurp his position as heir of the inheritance and authority over the land. Now contained within this parable is the story of God's relationship with Israel and the story of Jesus, the Christ. You see, God graciously created this amazing world, graciously gave mankind a position of stewardship as subregents within the world. He provided everything for us and asked nothing in return other than to image him, obey him, reflect his character to the world that we are stewarding. And to do so, we would need to act in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and kindness and covenant faithfulness. But rather than do that, each of us individually and collectively as a society cast aside our role and the requirements of it and errantly attempt to usurp his position of authority so that we can be an authority unto ourselves. So God sent us his prophets to tell us to repent, but God's people would not do it. With every call to conviction and repentance, every call to righteousness and justice, every call to love one another, every call to live within the authority of God's word and reason together from his truth, with every one of these calls, his people rebelled on their own authority. Read any of the prophets and you will see this. Read the disputations of Malachi, where every call to repentance is met with a response of disregard, defensiveness, and rebellion. But God loved his creation so much that he wasn't finished. He sent his son, the one that would inherit the nations, the last Adam, Jesus, to come and reason with us and call us to repentance and to image the kingdom of God's authority and reign. Over and over again in Mark, we see this authority in play. Jesus showed as authority over Satan, over the demonic, over the created realm under chaos. Jesus was the Christ, the anointed king and the ultimate authority. As the son of man, the title he used most often to refer to himself in Mark, he was given the authority over the nations from the ancient of days so that he might rule and reign. But then in the midst of that, he was taken and beaten brutalized and killed. Jesus was murdered at the hands of the very stewards who had been entrusted with God's precious vineyard. And to finish it off, Mark adds that Jesus quoted from Psalm 118, which speaks, as we heard earlier, of the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever. Would you turn there with me to Psalm 118 and we'll read it again. 
Psalm 118, starting in verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. I'll give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. In his death, and three days later in his resurrection, Jesus became the gate through which we could enter into righteousness. He became our very route of justification and salvation. He became the cornerstone of God's new humanity, the church, in which the Holy Spirit dwells. He was the festal sacrifice that takes away our sins, and his resurrection from the dead was marvelous in our eyes. And in all this work, Jesus was the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, that came in the name of Yahweh. The response of the psalmist is such a stark contrast to the response of the tenants, who are meant to picture the religious leaders. Those who are truly God's people will cry out when the Messiah is shown, You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. I will give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. But the religious leader's response back in Mark 12 was to figure out how to remove him, arrest him, because they were convicted, and he was making them look bad in front of the crowds. He was making them lose face. This parable speaks to us communally and individually, does it not? As a society, how hard we fight to not surrender authority to Jesus. As individuals, how hard we fight to not surrender our authority to Jesus. Each of us, myself included at times, can so quickly believe that we are the king or queen. We are the ultimate authority. We become entitled and judgmental and hard-hearted, just like these religious leaders. Because of this refusal to submit to his rightful authority, the owner, the true authority, will come and remove them from the vineyard destroy them, and give the vineyard to others who will steward it as it was meant to be stewarded. Jesus is clear here that because Israel was unable to steward their land and their role as God's people in a way that produced the fruit of righteousness and justice, he would remove it from their hands and give it to others, symbolizing the new humanity of God made up of Jew and Gentile justified in the blood of Jesus. And it is here that we see the last point from our text this morning. The inference of all of this is the truth that, you can write this down, we each are capable of being the tenants and usurping the authority of God. We each are capable of being the tenants and usurping the authority of God. The leaders of this story are so blinded by their self-interest, their political views, and their desire to hold on to dead traditions, that they are not operating under the fear of the Lord and his authority, but instead under fear of the people and fear of losing their position of power. Now we love to look back on the Israelites and cast judgment on their lack of righteousness and justice, their lack of repentance, but how quickly we can fall into the same trap as they did. It is so easy for us to usurp the authority of God. The first obvious way that the world usurps the authority of God is in discarding Jesus and rebelling against him as king. This is what the vast majority of humanity has done over the centuries. Turn with me to the book of John, chapter 5, starting in verse 18. John, chapter 5, starting in verse 18. And let's read through verse 33. It says there, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. 
For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now here John makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is the Son who has been given the authority of the Father. To not honor Jesus is to not honor the Father. And Jesus was granted the authority to judge, as pictured in the parable, because his authority comes from the Father. He is the one given authority as the Son of Man. So when a person disregards the authority of Christ, they are ultimately disregarding and rebelling against the authority of the God that created them. If that is you and you don't know Jesus, then judgment is what you will receive. But the good news is that Jesus died to take on that judgment for you. Today is the day to repent and surrender your life, your time, your treasure, your talents to Jesus as King. These things are not yours to hold and wield as you will. They are his, and they have been given to you for a time to see how you steward them under his authority. Give your life over to him, right where you sit right now. If that is you today, and you'd like to talk about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus, please email me at hans at missionsalem.com, and I'd love to discuss that with you. But then there's also a second way in which the authority of God is usurped, and this applies to most of us listening today. Notice that it was those supposedly already under the authority of the landowner that were the ones that usurped the authority in the parable. The dumbfounding point of the parable is that the rebellion came from the very people who had been shown the grace and kindness of God and felt the righteousness and justice of God and who should have known better. Each of us individually and together need to search our hearts to find out who reigns in authority in our lives. Does Jesus reign in every portion of your life or only the ones in which he agrees with you? Are we truly operating under God's authority or have we claimed authority in and of ourselves and merely pasted Jesus's name on it? We can check this by looking at how often we embrace difficult change and conviction in the word and through God's people. How do we respond when given a viewpoint other than the one we hold? Are we even open to it, or do we respond in immediate defensiveness, thinking that we are obviously right? If the word or another brother or sister brings humility, conviction, and change, then if it affects us well, we can be sure that we are submitted to Jesus because we are submitted to them bringing forth his word. This is the point of being a congregational church. We are not our own authority, but we submit ourselves one to another under his loving care. My heart has been so broken over the last few months. On the one hand, I have seen so many believers, many of you, just truly trying to love one another and reach out to one another, to serve our church community and the community around you, and humbly look at what is going on around us and ask what we can learn and how we can change to glorify Christ and image his love, righteousness, and justice. And to those of you that fall under that, I cannot say enough, well done, and thank you. Please keep persevering, keep studying, keep learning, stay humble, and keep loving one another. But then I've also seen people who claim to be Christ followers operating in vitriol, hatred, rage, and rigidity in opinion. 
Many are operating more out of their idol of political ideology and self-interest than out of a true desire to reason from Scripture and surrender to Christ. It seems that many are so firm in holding on to their political ideals that they will do so even at the cost of harming their brother or sister. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really want to find myself in the company of the tenants of this story, self-concerned and deluded to believe that I am something when I am, in fact, nothing without Christ. So let's finish this morning by asking the question, what does it take to make sure we are not like the tenants? What does it take to make sure that we are not like the tenants. And this is where we'll circle back to the discussion of Jesus's authority. He was asked where it came from. And the answer is that it came from the Father, as we have seen on numerous occasions in Daniel 7, and also today as we looked at in John 5. But turn back with me to John 5, if you're not already there, and let's read Jesus's words, beginning in John 5, 30. He says, I can do nothing on my own, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus, the Son of Man from Daniel 7, the Messiah spoken of throughout the whole Old Testament, the rightful heir and king of the inheritance of the kingdom of God, said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Dear Saint, can you imagine what would happen if we used that same filter and applied it to the words we use and the social media we post? I think we would be silent a whole lot more. So often, what I have to say is not based in God's will, God's character, or the nature of his kingdom. It is instead based in my presuppositions, my opinions, my arrogance, my myopic and flawed singular viewpoint. How wonderfully affected and changed our witness of Christ would be if we asked ourselves a simple question before we pronounce judgment or usurp the authority of God in our lives and over his world. Here's that question. Is this me, or is this of God and his goodness, righteousness, and justice? In other words, is this action, this sentence, this social media post of God and his goodness, righteousness, and justice, or is this out of me and my opinions, my flesh, and my emotions. I was reminded recently of a wonderful quote in Jeremiah 9. To set the stage, would you turn there with me and let's look at the background of the text I'm going to read by beginning in Jeremiah 9, verse 12, and going through verse 14. Jeremiah 9, verse 12, and going through verse 14. It says there, Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, Because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. The people of Israel had turned God's fruitful vineyard into a wilderness of chaos and barrenness. How did they do that? By forsaking God's rule, his law, and disobeying his voice while choosing their own way. In doing so, they were going after false gods and yet claiming that they still followed the God of Israel. Dear brothers and sisters, I say this with deep love and concern for all of us in this church. In the midst of the current chaos of the world, some of you hear the call to righteousness and justice or to lay down your lives for your brothers and sisters and yet you so much worship your idols of conservatism or liberalism or your rugged individualism that these calls to follow Christ seem to fall on deaf ears. But dear friend, do you realize that it is not our conservatism or our liberalism 
or our statistics or our logic in which we find authority and truth. It is in the word of God, in so much as we take from it the truth of his character. And that is what we are to boast in, not anything else. And that's the point of Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. It says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Brothers and sisters, our opinions in this season of unrest do not matter unless they are founded upon the Lord, our relationship with him, and our proclamation of his character by the actions and words of our life. In that alone do we have truth and authority and find our place of boasting. Our opinions do not matter unless they are his opinions. One last place I'll turn you to this morning is Psalm 2. Would you turn there with me? Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2 paints a picture of two groups of people, one under the authority of the king that God appoints, and the other group full of people raging against God's rule. It's very similar to the idea of the tenants versus the others. And this is Psalm 2, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Each of us needs to look inward today and ask the question, do I look more like the tenants, like the religious leaders and the raging nations? Or do I look like the one who has taken refuge in the anointed king? Not only for his salvation that he alone brings, but also to obey him when he calls for the fruit of righteousness and justice, when he calls to fight oppression in the world. Do I take refuge in him to obey him when he calls us to look out for the interests of others above our own, to obey him when he calls us to love our enemies and pray for our leaders, regardless of if we agree with them? Do I take refuge in him to obey him when he calls us to submit to godly authority when it is acting in the bounds of its job? And to begin with, I have a very simple application for you this week. Not only should we ask these questions of ourselves and search our hearts of, to find out whether or not we are in his will, but we must first know his will. And in order to know his will, his reign, and his rule, you have to read your Bibles. It amazes me how many people believe they know the heart of God when their Bible sits unused and untouched, and even when it is, there are just certain passages and certain places that are touched. If you so desire to seek out the true heart of your Father God so that you can operate within his rule of love, then you will never stop seeking to know what his word says. Seek him and you will find him. This week, I want you to commit to getting in the word every day to see who God is. You can start by rereading Mark up through our reading today and let all that you have learned thus far wash over you. And let me finish with a simple text that all of us can use to ask ourselves the question of whether or not we sit under the rule of Christ this week. I want you to memorize and meditate on one simple statement from Micah 6, 8. 
that will help us make sure we are submitting to the authority of God. Many of you are familiar with it. It says this, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Do justice, love kindness, walk in humility. Dear brothers and sisters, if you believe that you are under the authority of God, then let that simple truth reign over your words and actions this week. Test your heart and see if Jesus is your authority. And if not, there is no time to repent like the present. Practice submission to that command this week. Study God's word. Check your heart. And let's see if we can't be a church that shows by our actions and words that we are truly under the authority of Christ.
Let's pray. Holy Lord, to you authority is a position that holds righteousness and justice as pillars. You have given humanity opportunity to exercise authority, but we continue to see a pattern of abuse in that authority and to reject authority over us. When injustice occurs, we cry out for justice. And sometimes we see glimpses of justice appear, but fades as history repeats. The cycle has continued since our beginning. And all the while you have declared your authority and call us to submit to you. You have used your authority for righteousness and justice. You have reconciled humanity through your sacrificial love by dying on the cross, resurrecting and ascending to your throne. And in your kingdom, restoration occurs. Peace is obtained and eternal love reigns. You have created a new people who are to take on your character of reconciliation and submit to your authority. Truly, we need you, Lord Jesus. We need your guidance and wisdom in this season of chaos and injustice. We need you to lead us in empathy towards others and how we use our words and actions. We need to remain steadfast in unity and submission to your good authority. We need to proclaim the love of Christ to each other and our neighbor. Reveal to us, Lord, where we have put ourselves above your authority. May we learn to walk humbly in this season by receiving conviction and working out changes in our hearts and minds that lead to sincere actions of love, righteousness, and justice, all of which you call us to. Praise be to you, O Lord, who brings righteousness and justice. Amen.